Hello, welcome to the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church, continuing in our series on 1 Peter entitled Behind Enemy Lines. Today we'll be going through 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 15, and the title of the message this morning is Be Ye of One Mind. Please enjoy. 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're still continuing in our series through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 8 if you have your place in 1 Peter 3. I'm going to ask you one last time to stand in respect and reverence to the Word of God. We'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 8. We're going to read down to verse number 15. Finally, be ye all of one mind. Having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, let his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good, and let him seek peace and ensue it. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are upon, are, are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The title of the message this morning is Be Ye All of One Mind. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, once again we come to you and we bow our heads before message. We pray that the power of God and the Holy Spirit would fill this place this morning. We want to feel your presence. We want the word of God to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you through your word speak to us this morning. Give us something from this book that will change us and make us different. Be with the preaching of the word of God this morning. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want to remind ourselves just for a second who exactly Peter is writing to. The title of this series in 1 Peter that I'm going through is um, entitled Behind Enemy Lines. So Peter is writing this, this letter of 1 Peter. He's writing it to people who are suffering. These are Jews who heard the gospel and they got saved. Because of that, in Israel, in their homes, these Jews, they're called traitors. They're called traitors because they turn their back on their, on, on their Judaism. They turn their back on, they're called traitors by their own blood. They're called traitors by their own people. They were driven away from home and they lost everything they had I want you to understand that that culture is a religious culture. So when you left that culture, 
you left it when you left the religion you left everything behind you left your money you left your bank account you left your home you left everything you lost everything you had so they're driven out of out of israel and they're driven into a place uh uh and uh, driven into asia minor which is modern day turkey to me and you <coughs> and now <clears throat> these jews they're living among the pagans. Now they're living among the Greek pagans. They're living in a Roman culture. And guess what? These people don't want them either. So these Jews, these saved Christian Jews, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place because they can't go back home because home doesn't want them. And where they're at, they're being mistreated and, and they're being unjustly treated and unfairly treated. And they don't know what to do because they can't go back home. And where they're at now, the people don't want them. It's the definition of between a rock and a hard place. So Peter comes out and he says, look, we're all foreigners anyway. We're all foreigners. We're all citizens of another country. That is heaven anyway. We're all foreigners in this place. We don't belong to this world. We are different. Maybe, uh, maybe you can relate to being the new guy. I know I can. Um, I remember when I went off to uh, college, and not only was I f like 14 hours away from home, in a strange place, and I had never, never been, I'd never left home before. Not only that, but I was a southern boy up in Yankee land, and, you know, that was, uh, that's something in and of itself, and, you know, I, 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 it was a whole new world, I tell you what, and uh, it was, it was, it was, it was, I almost thought I'd never get used to it. So we all kind of know what it likes to be the new guy. But Peter's trying to tell these Christians how they should act among the Greeks. He told them how to act with their employers, their masters. He told them how to act in their homes between husbands and wife, how to act in the workplace. But now, now Peter's going to tell these Christians how they need to act towards one another. How they need to act towards other Christians. He's giving these Christians instructions on how to become a church family. This is how to become a church family. How we treat each other in the environment in which we live in. Now, I'm not about to say that we live in as a hostile environment that, but they, that they lived in. But I, I will tell you that each day it's getting closer and closer to that. Each day it's getting closer and closer. How much longer in this country will Christians have the ability to speak, to share the word of God openly? I don't know how much longer we're going to have that ability. How long is it going to be before they march through that door and come down here and try to tell us what we can and what we can't preach? If you don't believe that there are people in Washington right now that want to that wanna stop you from worshiping God the way the Word of God says He is to be worshipped, then you fell out of the dumb tree and hit every branch on the way down. Because they are up there and they want to stop us. They don't want this Word of God preached. 
But let's see how he tells us to live. Verse 8. Finally, he says, listen, finally, be ye all of one mind. A church family needs to be of one mind. In the Greek, that's one Greek word. And that one Greek word means harmonious. Harmonious. Be in harmony. When you pulled up to church today and you stepped out and your foot hit the concrete and you came in and you shook hands and you talked and the music started and you sang songs and you did the offering and you listened to the worship, did, did, it, did, it, did you feel harmony? You should have. Why? God only works in harmony. God only works in oneness. He does not work in disunity. He does not work. God wants nothing to do with disunity. In fact, disunity goes against God's very being. Why does disunity go against God's beating? Uh, God's uh, very being? Because God is Trinity. God is Trinity. He is Father. He is Son. He is the Holy Ghost. He is three people in one God. You don't do that with disunity. You do that with harmony. You do that with oneness. So when we have peace and we have harmony and we have oneness as a family of God, we are tapping into the essence of God. That kind of relationship, the, the Trinity relationship inside of God's being, it happens through harmony. It demands oneness. It's the only way it can happen. So when you go through a trial, and whether you're still going through the trial or out, or you outside the trial, either way, somewhere in there, you find peace and you find rest. No, Christian, know this. When you find peace and you find rest, you are tapping into the essence of God. God isn't God without harmony. God isn't God without peace. God isn't God without rest. It's the only way he can make that trinity work. So when peace washes over you and, and, and rest washes over you and you feel it, you're feeling the essence of God. God thrives in peace and harmony because God is harmony. Paul and Silas, I mean Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas split up because there was disunity. They were arguing over John Mark. Barnabas wanted John Mark. Paul didn't. So they split ways. Barnabas took Mark and went this way. Paul took Silas and went this way. And there was harmony once again. See, God can't work in disunity. He can't work in it. And, 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 and he, would rather, he would rather the two be in harmony than the one still be in disunity. The night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed. He, this is what he prayed. John 17, 20 through 21. Listen to what Jesus prayed. He said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Did you hear that? He just prayed for me and you. This is Jesus' prayer. He's praying for me and you right now. Let me read it again. 
Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. He's praying for me. This is Jesus' prayer request for me and for you. And he could have prayed for anything for me and you. He could have prayed that we brought our Bibles to church. I don't know. He could have prayed for anything. But what did he pray for? He, he prayed for us to have oneness. He prayed for us to have harmony. He prayed uh, that we would have a place that we could come to and love and be loved and be at peace and be at harmony and be one. That was his prayer for me and you. His prayer was, Father, I want them to experience the oneness that me and you experience. The same oneness and the same harmony that we have, I want them to have that with each other and have that in me. The church's harmony and the church's oneness is very, very important. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Jesus is about to die. Jesus is about to be tortured. He's about to have the crown of thorns put on his head. His flesh is going to be ripped from his body. And what was he concerned with? He was concerned that me and you would be loved. He was concerned that we would have a place that we could come to and be loved and get along and love each other. And in that moment, I mean, you can understand he's God. He knows the cross is before him. And as God, he could probably even feel it for it got there. But in that moment, all he was concerned with was me and you loving each other. Me and you getting along. It was me and you having oneness and harmony. So where, where does our oneness come from? Where does it come from? Well, we've all got the same Lord. We've all got one Lord. We've all got the same faith. Um, there's one gospel, one spirit. There's one church or body. There's one Bible. Man, oneness is important. And that's what Jesus wanted for us. So, how do we as a church make sure we are growing in oneness? I mean, uh, how do we even know that we are a church like this? What are the marks of a church with oneness? Well, in verses 8 and 9, he gives us five marks of oneness or five marks of unity in a church. And if a church has these five marks, they are a church in harmony. They are a church with oneness. This is a church with unity. So I'm going to give you this morning five marks of a unified church. Mark number one, having compassion one of another. Having compassion one of another. Now this word compassion, it means sympathetic. You know, I've been through some pain. Now, I'm only 37 years old. I haven't been through some of the pain that you've been through. I have had pain, though. But I haven't had as much pain 
as some of you had. But the pain that I have had, if I hadn't have had it, it would have hindered me from being sympathetic to your pain. I've only hurt this much. This is how much I've hurt. Now let's say you come up and you're going through something and now you're hurting this much. Ooh, I hadn't been out there yet. This is as far as I've went. This is all the pain that I've been through. So, man, I can't, man, I can't imagine what it's like out there because I've only been this far. But you know what I can do? I haven't been through what you've been through, but you know what I can do? I can be there for you. I can be there for you. I can give you a hug. I can take you out to lunch. I might not have the right words. I might not have the right words, and I don't know if I'll do a sufficient job of helping you carry this burden, but I can be there for you. Because you know what? I know what pain feels like. It may not be as much pain as you, but I know what pain feels like. And when your pain exceeds my pain, I can look at you and I can say, even though I can't empathize because I haven't been there, I can sympathize and I can say, man, I can't imagine what you're going through. Your heart, it must be in shreds right now. I can't imagine what you're going through. But I'm here for you. I can listen. I can love you. I might sometimes not have the right. It's hard to pray sometimes. It's hard to pray out loud for a hard situation. Because sometimes you just don't know what to say. Sometimes you don't know what to say. I'm going to be very transparent with you right now. What do you pray when somebody's in a tough spot? When somebody's got a terminal illness? Do you pray for healing? Do you pray that it's comfortable? I mean, sometimes you just don't know what to pray. And that's when you just got to rely on God. Right. Rely on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tell you. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. Sometimes it's hard to pray. But man, when somebody's going to the hospital and somebody's going through a rough time, man, just, just be there for, for them. Have compassion you want to know why jesus is the greatest comforter of all time because no one has experienced as much pain as jesus has experienced that's why he is the greatest comforter of all time because nobody has been through as much pain as jesus has been through so christian you got pain he's a pain no, i'm sorry christian you got pain what are you going to do what are you going to do with that pain? If you give that pain to Jesus, guess what he can do? He can redeem that pain. So are you giving your pain to Jesus or are you going to be bitter about it? Because look, if you've got pain, you've got two choices this morning. You can carry that pain around with you 
for the rest of your life and you'll have a big black jagged hole in your heart for the rest of your life and you can carry that big black jagged hole around with you or you can give that pain to Jesus. He can mold that pain into something useful for the kingdom. He can take your pain and make it useful for his kingdom and his glory. But it's your choice. You're either going to carry it around and be bitter and have a hole in your heart. Or you're going to give it to him. And he's going to take it and mold something out of it that can be useful for the kingdom. So you can help other people. Number two, second mark of a unified church. Love as brethren. Love as brethren. Now I've got two boys. So I understand that brotherly love can be, a bit, can be a bit messy. I mean, when one of them takes a PVC pipe with a metal bracket and smacks the other one in the head and he starts bleeding like a stuck hog, things can get messy. I told Colin, it's okay, chicks dig scars. It's okay. But you know what? At the end of the day, they're still brothers. And, and, and here's the thing about brothers. No matter what happens, there's always a loyalty there. There's always a loyalty between brothers. Friends are friends and friends can be close, but brothers, brothers can be friends. And then beneath that, there's a loyalty there. They're loyal to one another. Listen. True brothers and true sisters in Christ are not going to turn their back on you when your life gets messy. They're not going to do it. Man, when things are going well in your life and things are going good, man, all your friends are right up underneath you. But then you start having a tough time. And then your life gets a little messy. And you're going to see some of your friends start to draw further and further away from you. But then other friends, you're going to notice, they're going to draw closer and closer and closer to you. And it's times like that, the great preacher of the faith, Tracy Lawrence, would say, you find out who your friends are. Okay? In those times, that's when you find out who your real friends are. 1 John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. If you love God, you will love his people. Satan is not going to attack your love for the world. Satan isn't going to attack our love for the world. Satan's going to attack our love for each other. And if he attacks our love for each other and succeeds, man, he's destroyed us. It's our love for each other that makes us special. If, if God commanded us to be acquaintances with each other, acquaintances come and go. I've got no loyalty to an acquaintance. If you mess up, I'll just go get another acquaintance. But he didn't command us to be an acquaintance. He commanded us to be brothers. He commanded us to be sisters. And what does that mean? That means there is a loyalty between us. There is a loyalty there between us. 
That means even if you mess up, I'm still committed to you. As Baptists, we got a bad habit kicking each other while we're down. Got a bad habit of doing that. But man, when we mess up, we're still committed to each other. There was a man that called a preacher. This man called a preacher and said, Hey, so I wanted to ask you, I'm thinking about visiting your church. Is, is your church a loving church? And the preacher thought for a second. It's such an odd question. He thought for a second. He said, well, yeah, yeah, our church is a loving church. And then the man on the phone said, good, because my last church wasn't a loving church. And the pastor said, ah, he just wants to complain about his old church. And so he listened to this guy, and they talked for a long time on the phone. And then finally the pastor said, you know, yes, we're a loving church, but that doesn't mean you're not ever going to be offended. That doesn't mean that nobody's ever going to rub you the wrong way. And they said, if I could encourage you just for a second, we are not called to be loved. We are called to love. Okay. And, you know, what I would encourage you to do is find a church and just love those people no matter what. And would you believe it? That's not what the guy wanted to hear. It's not what the guy wanted to hear. God never said, if you love Jesus, uh, then other people should love you. No, that's not a verse in the Bible. He didn't call us to be loved. Man, I'm leaving that church because they're not a loving church. They don't. Uh, ever do anything for me and they don't ever meet my needs and I'm all over here struggling and they're over here doing good and they don't ever do anything for me. It's not about you. It's not about me. We're not called in this church to receive love. We're called in this church to give love. And man, if we all did our job, guess what? Everybody would be loved. But even if you're not, you're not called to, 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 to receive it. You're called to give it. Number three, be pitiful. No, be pitiful. Now, this, this literally means it means tenderhearted. In fact, you might have a translation where it's translated tenderhearted. But that's what this means. The opposite of this would be hardhearted. You know, if someone is harsh to you, we need to be a people where our attitude remains soft. Now, I don't mean you shouldn't have thick skin. Man, if you don't have thick skin as a Christian, you're in trouble. You got to have thick skin as a Christian. But have thick skin and a soft heart. You know, you might even be called to love another Christian that you don't particularly like. I've come across that before. I want you to love that person, but I really don't like him. I don't care. I love him. You might be called to love someone that you don't particularly like. But you know what? You'll find that if you do love that person, then you'll begin to like them. Just kind of a side effect. Be tenderhearted. Be soft-hearted. Number four, be courteous. Be courteous. And this means to have a humble mind, to, have a hum to be humble-minded. That's what it means to be courteous. 
Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Listen to this. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. What? What? And if that's true, we sin every day. Tell us not to be vain. Tell us not to be selfish. Us humans? Are you kidding me? That's true. We sin every day of our lives. Continuing. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which also in, in Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus. Can you come to the place where you say, everybody in this room is more significant than me, and I'm going to prove it. And I am going to prove it. Everybody else goes first. I go last. I am below everybody. Everybody else's needs come first. I want to be the last in the line. I want to be the last to get mine. I want everybody else to get first. And you come to that place. That's how Christ lived his life. Jesus was such an amazing person. He is such an amazing person. And you know that the more you try to live like Jesus, the, naturally un, the more naturally unselfish you will become. The more you try to live like Jesus, naturally the more unselfish you will become. And this courteous politeness, this humility that that produces in your life, it will become a part of your character. You know the difference between me, us, and Jesus when me and you walk into a room full of strangers, we're thinking about ourselves. Is my hair combed? Is my pants on straight? Does my breast stink? You know, you're thinking about yourself. When Jesus walked into a room, the last thing he thought about was himself. He was like, how can I make everybody else in this room feel better? It's a mark of unified church. Number five. Don't repay evil for evil. Let's read verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. One of the greatest challenges you will ever face as a Christian is how you react when you are wronged. How you react when you are wronged. When you got the short end of the stick, when you got a raw deal, when you were treated unjustly and you were treated unfairly, how do you react to that? Because we, all, we always want to defend ourselves. We all have kind of an inner lawyer in us that wants to come out and defend ourselves. And when we're, we're speeding down the interstate and, a, and a, a cop passes us, turns around and turns his lights on behind us, we're like, mercy, mercy, no justice, no justice. But then the cop passes us and pulls over the guy that cut us off and we're like, ha ha, justice. You know? We all want that inner lawyer. We all just want to kind of defend ourselves. Okay? But... When we feel wronged, we want to defend ourselves. We, we do. But one of the biggest aspects, did you know that one of the biggest aspects of being a Christian and following God is trusting him to be our defender? Trusting him to be our rescuer? Trusting him to be our advocate? 
But listen, you're going to get to the point. We're going to be like, I want to defend myself. And God's going to be like, fine, go ahead. I was going to do it, but go ahead. You defend yourself. And you've been chewing on something. You've been chewing on these words. And they've been building up inside of you and bubbling up inside of you. And you decide to let those words out somebody. And you open your mouth and you let somebody have it. And man, in that moment, it feels good. And then when you get home that night, you're going to feel worse. And you can't put words back in your mouth. And the damage that you, that you would have done is irreversible. Bite your tongue, hold it in, and follow Jesus, who, by the way, was led to a lamb as a lamb to the slaughter and opened not his mouth. Our natural instinct is retaliation. That's our natural instinct. But God goes, he says, look, don't just keep your mouth shut. He takes it a step further. Don't just keep your mouth shut. I want you to bless them. I want you to do something good for them. I want you to do something nice for them. You know, cliches are cliches for a reason because they work. And here's one you heard growing up. Two wrongs don't make a right. And it's a, it's a cliche for a reason. Because if somebody wrongs you, you wronging them back, does not make it right. It doesn't. You will only ever overcome evil with good. Evil does not overcome evil. You will only overcome evil with good. This next section, we're going to talk about verses 10 through 12. Here, Peter quotes directly from Psalms 34. And what he's doing here is he's telling you that there is a blessing for not repaying evil with evil. There's a blessing for it. So this comes straight out of Psalms 34. Let's, uh, let's read it. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Why do people do evil? It's quite simple, really. Um, evil gets you immediate results. You want results today? Try evil. Immediate results. Doing the right thing, on the other hand, that reward takes time. Getting a reward for doing the right thing, that takes patience. That takes time. And the thing about it is you might not even see that reward in this lifetime. It might not be to the next time you get that reward. But doing evil, it's immediate. But the reward for doing right is often delayed. And that's why a lot of people don't do right nowadays. But these are the five marks of a unified church, a church family. Having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful or tenderhearted, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil. Now, verse 13, Peter's going to transition away from how Christians should act towards each other and transition back to how the Christians should act with the Gentiles oppressing them. 
And verse 13 says, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? I want you to understand this morning that there is a difference between being hurt and being harmed. Peter was beaten for his faith. People hurt him physically. They could not harm Peter. They could hurt him, they could hurt his body, but they could not harm him. There were things inside of Peter that they could not get to. There were things in his spirit, there were things in his soul that they could not touch. They could hurt his body, but they could not harm his spirit. They could not harm his position in Christ. Verse number 14. But... And if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. You know, if you look in the Bible of Americans, you'll see certain verses highlighted. Maybe you'll see Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. Maybe you'll see Romans 8.28. We know all things work together for good that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. Maybe you might see that where there is no vision, the people perish. All of these verses, these are the verses that you're going to see American Christians highlight. But if you go over to and open a, a Christian's Bible in China or you open a Christian's Bible in Pakistan, or you open a Christian's Bible in Iran, this is the verse they're going to have highlighted. If you suffer for righteousness' sake. Why? Because they're suffering for their faith. They're suffering for their faith. That is the verse they're going to have highlighted in their Bible. And it says here, it says here, when you're suffering, don't be afraid of their terror. As they're making you suffer, the word trouble here, it means struck in fear. Have you ever just been struck in fear very quickly? That's, that's what it's talking about. Fear to strike your heart. And Peter says, Christians, don't let fear strike your heart. Christians, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be in terror because, because Christians have promises and these promises need to make us not be afraid. And not troubled. How do you not be troubled? I mean, there's a lot of trouble in the world. There's a lot of trouble in the world. How in the world do I do that? How do I not be troubled? It says, if you suffer for righteousness, sake, happy are ye. That word happy, it's the same word as blessed. It's the same word as blessed. We need to remember while we are suffering that there is a reward. And if we remember that, we can remain godly through suffering. If we remember that there is a reward. One day, we're going to stand before God. And in his presence, he's going to reward us. You know what that means? Years ago, you did something, maybe 10, 15 years ago, you did something good for somebody. And right now, you don't even remember it. You did something good for somebody 15 years ago, and you don't even remember what it was. You'll never remember it this side of eternity. But 
Jesus remembers it. He didn't forget. And when you get to heaven, he'll have a reward waiting on you for that. And everything you went through and everything you suffered through, it will all have been worth it. I love, as parents, being able to bless my kids or give my kids surprises without them knowing it and seeing the look on their face. I love that. It's one of the great privileges of being a parent. Sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll tell our kid, you know, we'll be going towards Hammond and say, why are we going to Hammond? And I'll say, well, we're going shopping. And so we go actually go to Target. That way we're not lying to them. And so we go to Target, and then when we come out of the parking lot, we swing into the movie theater, like, oh, we're going to see a movie, ah! They just flip out. It's just awesome to get to surprise them and see the look on their face. When we were going to Gatlinburg this past year, boys had never been. And I told them, we're going to Rock City. <coughs> that just confused them, confused them. And Caleb was like, Daddy, is it a, a city made of rocks? Huh? And they just didn't get it. But when I brought them in there, they didn't know what to expect. But I brought them in there, and they just loved it. They loved everything about it. And, you know, and I took them on to Gatlinburg. I took them on to the Smoky Mountains and Dollywood and all that. But their favorite part was Rock City. That was their favorite part. And I love giving my children joy that they didn't know was coming. They knew something was coming, but they really didn't know what it was. That's what getting to heaven is going to be like. Jesus is going to be like a parent who's bought you a gift every birthday and every Christmas and every occasion. He's bought you all these gifts. And when you get there, he gets to give you those gifts. He gets to give you those rewards. And he gets to see the look on your face as you open them and as you receive them. And I can only imagine that that day is going to be one of Jesus' favorite days when he gets to see his children open their rewards in heaven. I can imagine as a parent that that's going to be one of Jesus' favorite days. Hebrews eleven six, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God just don't want you to believe that he exists. He wants you to believe that he is a rewarder. Because he is. Verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, this is called the apologetics verse. And if I was going to stand up here and preach a message on apologetics, I'd be here another two hours. Okay, so I'm just going to hit this one real quick. Um, but this is the apologetics verse. And it's like when somebody questions you, you need to have a reason for why you believe what you believe, basically. And look, and you don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be a professional debater. And look, if somebody's trying to draw you into an argument, don't go there. Don't cast your pearls to the swine. But if somebody's genuinely curious, 
and they genuinely want to know about your faith and know what you believe, you've got to have something to tell them. Why do you believe there's a God? One of my go-to answers when I open up this conversation is, well, where did the earth come from? Oh, the Big Bang. What happened in the Big Bang? Oh, gases came together and exploded, made everything. Where'd the gases come from? And they can't explain that. You can't have something from nothing. You can't do that. The only way you can explain that is a God. Our earth is so finely tuned. If we were an inch closer to the sun, we wouldn't exist. If we're a few inches away, we'd freeze. Everything is so finely tuned. I look at the evidence around us, and I don't see it happening without a God. Our world happening by chance is like a letter factory blowing up and a Webster's Dictionary falling out of the sky. That's how fine-tuned our world is. Why is Christianity right? All these other religions are wrong. Well, Christianity... I don't know if you've thought about it, but Christianity is based around one event, and that is the resurrection of Christ. That is what Christianity is built around, is the resurrection of Christ. Okay, The New Testament didn't create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament. There were thousands of Christians before one line of the New Testament was ever written. Jesus dying and being resurrected is a historical fact. You can go to an empty tomb and look in it and see there's nobody in there. Who's in Muhammad's tomb? Muhammad? But I digress. I want to re-examine this verse. I want to look at that first sentence again. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Did you just hear what that verse told me and you to do very interesting all through the bible the bible tells us over and over and over that it's god that sanctifies us now the bible's telling us to sanctify god and and place him in our hearts what what does this mean what does this mean well the word sanctify it simply means to set apart if i had a case of water here and I pick this water up and I set this water over here away from this other water, this water would be sanctified. This water is set apart. That's what it means. So what this means is, is we set God apart from everything else in our life to a special place in our hearts. Our hearts have many chambers. Our hearts have many rooms. We, we have room for a lot of love in our hearts. We do. But there is a place that is in the deepest recesses of your heart. And in that singular place, deep, deep inside of your heart, you put what is most special to you. And what God wants is God wants to be able to call that place in your heart his sanctuary. I love the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and it was replaced by the temple. But I love the, I love the, the tabernacle and the temple because um, but the temple's a picture of our body. It's a picture of many things, but it's also a picture of our body. Jesus called his body the temple. He calls our bodies the temple. 
A temple has three main parts. You have the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. The outer court, that's the outside of you. Um, you know, uh, we can all experience your outer court. You know, uh, that's the outside of your temple. The inner court was where the Jews went and the, the priests went. They went to worship God and, and be closer to him. But then there was that deeper place in the very center, that deep, deep place called the Holy of Holies. And it was in that place that the presence of God dwelt. And it was so sanctified and was so set apart that one time a year, one man could enter there on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur and one man could enter that place. And that place was the Ark of the Covenant and he would take blood and he would sprinkle that blood on the lid of that box. And the lid of that box is called the mercy seat because it's where God sat. In your heart right now, there is a throne. There's a throne in your heart. Now let me ask you a question. Is God sitting on that throne? We say, Jesus, I like you, Jesus. But I, I'm going to be king of this castle, Jesus. I'm going to be king of this castle. You go stay in a guest room, Jesus. Go stay in the guest room. When I need you, I know where you're at. When I need you, I'll call you out. You can do some miracles for me and heal me from sickness, and you go back in the guest room. But I'm the king of this castle. I'm the one sitting on the throne of this heart. Maybe today something is sitting on your throne. Maybe today someone else is sitting on your throne. Maybe today even you are sitting on your own throne because you want to be king of your own castle. But maybe today it's time to say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to step down from this throne. And I want you to sit in it. I'll go stay in the guest bedroom. I'll be a guest here. I don't want to be king of this castle anymore, Jesus. I want you to rule and reign in my heart and have priority over everything else. Who is sitting on your throne? 